Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Unscrewed. The show that knows that real liberation includes sexual liberation. I am Jacqueline Friedman. Welcome back to the show. This week, in case you have not noticed, Valentine's Day is fast approaching. And if you haven't noticed, please tell me your secrets. And so I thought it was an appropriate time to sort of take a step back from all the propaganda and get real about like what is love? Like insert whatever music cue that brings to mind for you here but it's a big question and we don't talk about it often enough and i happen to have as a guest someone who's written a whole book and spent a lot of time thinking about the nature of love and is here to guide this to this conversation welcome to the show Carrie Jenkins Hi, thanks very much for having me. Thanks for coming on. So you are a writer and a philosopher, a professor of philosophy, and your new book is called What Love Is and What It Could Be. Do I have that correct? Yeah, that's right. That's a big brief, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like to think big. <laughs> that's a bold uh, task you set for yourself, but before we get to it, as you know, since you are a listener of this show, we have to go through the lightning round. Are you ready? Absolutely. Excellent. So what's been making you the happiest this week? I'm a big podcast fan and so this week I was listening to the first episode of the second season of a podcast that I really love called Buffering the Vampire Slayer. Um do you know this podcast? No, but I'm a big Buffy fan. Buffering the Vampire Slayer? You need to know about this podcast. Yes, it's called Buffering the Vampire Slayer and it's two women who are married um as in married to each other and not to other people and they they have a conversation about each episode of um Buffy the Vampire Slayer in turn so you can watch along with them um and they do amazing things like they they give out a sexual tension award for each episode and they mention the patriarchy once per show um and <laughs> one of them is a musician and writes and performs a little song at the end <gasps> of the podcast about what happened in that episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer How do I not know about this it sounds like designed specifically for me It is wonderful and they're brilliant and and adorable and and I love this podcast All right what is the best sex advice you've ever received to stop calling only very specific kind of sexual act sex. So um there was a time when I was really in the swing of that and thinking, you know, a penis has to go into a vagina mm. or it's not sex. Sex didn't happen. And so I I had this piece of advice actually from the guy I later married to say no, that's not what sex is. That's not what the word means. It seems like such a little thing, like a word, but 
it's actually huge because it shifts your perspective. It's actually more about the concept than it is about the word. It shifts your perspective on what the whole process is. He sounds like a quality man. That's good you married him. He's a quality man. (laughs) So that's a good description. What is the sexuality news that's been making you the maddest or saddest lately? And I should say for listeners, we're recording this a bit in advance. So I mean, this is tough because I actually find I'm finding it hard to have emotions about news anymore. After the end of last year, it's been really tough to recover what I would think of as a normal emotional response to what's happening in the world. Mm. So I was just reading about these um, Senate votes to try to keep coverage for various kinds of reproductive health care when the Affordable Care Act gets repealed. But I mean, so there's all that sort of thing. But there's also a little local thing that's happening. My university, which is uh, a guy called uh, John Furlong, who was he'd been invited to to give a, a very sort of prominent talk at the university. Um, He's a guy who's been accused by multiple people of abusing indigenous children at a school in the 1970s, right? So, you know, giving him this huge platform is sending a certain kind of message. And UBC had actually cancelled his invitation under pressure from activists. You know, that was a really interesting decision, a really interesting move. Um, But then what's just happened this week is that the president of the university has stepped in and re-invited him. (gasps) And he's re-accepted, so he's coming. Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, I think saddest would be the best response that, that I could use to describe what's happening to me as a result of this. And, you know, over the protest of my Indigenous uh, colleagues at the university who seem to be just being ignored in these discussions, and it's it's really distressing. And then after, after that, just to add insult to injury, we get an email round to the university saying, it's Sexual Assault Awareness Month at our <laughs> university. <laughs> I'm like, well, yeah, <laughs> okay then. Um, you know, I guess I guess I'll I'll wear denim or whatever, but it just feels a little hollow. It seems like a little play in one act about how awareness is not should not be the goal, right? We're all aware, right? right? Like everybody's aware. <laughs> yeah, we need to get a little bit beyond that. We need to do something. All right. Well, what's the biggest sex myth that you once believed? That you can only do it with one person at a time. Mm, we're going to be talking about that. You know, nobody ever mentioned any other possibilities. So that was the the way I saw sex represented all yeah. the time. That was the only description there ever was. So that's what I thought That's what I thought it was, to have sex. Well, you definitely are convinced otherwise now, which we will talk about. Yeah. And lastly, who's one of the bravest people that you know of who is working to unscrew the sexual culture? Okay, so I wanted to talk here about like people who are in my own field. So yeah. I work in in academia and philosophy, which some people like don't realize this, but it's actually really male dominated in statistical terms. Like the number of men working in my field is still more like what you might think of for like a physics department or engineering or something like that than it is like English, which tends to be much more gender balanced. Not surprisingly, given that fact, it has a massive sexual harassment problem that's been going unaddressed for years and years and years. And there are there are lots of people who've been working so hard and so tirelessly to address that that I wanted to give them kind of a little shout out. Yes, yes. <laughs> so I'm going with Sally Haslanger and Jennifer Saul. They're both professors, philosophy professors, and they're excellent philosophy professors. And also on top of that, they're working really hard to unscrew the sexual culture of philosophy in academia. And I really appreciate it. It's inspiring. It's tough. Philosophy has been like this for so long. And I talk about this a little bit in the book, actually, like some of the history of the the philosophy of love. 
it's just been ignoring women's voices for so long that now it's hard. Like you can't just pick up the history book, the history of philosophy book and find all the interesting women. If you pick up the history of philosophy book, you'll just find a big list of interesting men. So let's talk about the philosophy of love. What is love? The closest I get to an answer is what I call this dual nature theory. Love has biological components and um, and it has a social component. And so the social part it's basically a social construct. You can think of it like if you think of gender as a social construct, you could think of romantic love very similarly, right? So romantic love, there's a certain kind of script that that's supposed to conform to. You could think of it as like, you know, basically the script for rom-coms. You're supposed to meet uh, someone um, and it's just one person mm-hmm. uh, and you're supposed supposed to have really intense feelings um, and you're supposed to that's supposed to include like sexual feelings but also you know a lot more than that a lot of passion a lot of kind of commitments eventually and then you're supposed to date for a while and then supposed to get married you're supposed to have kids and you're supposed to stay together forever monogamous forever and then you know eventually you die that's kind of the script for how that's supposed to go so I want to say like that does you don't get that from biology right if you look at what we are as biological creatures as animals doesn't deliver most of that script what you get if you look at the biology is a series of neurochemical responses you know so like chemistry goes off in our brains and it's doing that for a reason right but it's this is the part where it gets tricky because if you're simplistic about that then you're going to say what's happened is that we evolved to be naturally monogamous, naturally hetero, um, so that we could reproduce the species, right? Um, That sounds natural, I think, to a lot of people, but it's very easy to confuse nature for culture in these discussions because what's really familiar to us also sounds natural. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean it's necessarily biology, okay? Um, And the problem with attributing too much to the biology here is that that picture doesn't really explain what we actually see. We don't actually see, if you look at the whole history of of humanity, a general tendency all the time towards monogamous, basically nuclear family structures, right? That's that's what we see in some places at some times, um, but other places, other times, we see these maybe polygamous structures. You actually sometimes do see polyandrous as well, um, structures where one woman has multiple male partners, although those are more unusual, but they're not as unusual as was previously thought. And then again, you might see just sort of large-scale cooperative structures where family units are not the, the primary way of organizing a society. You also can't attribute to biology a drive towards um, exclusive hetero relationships because it doesn't explain the data. It doesn't explain the fact that there's just all these other kinds of relationships that that exist, right? Even going against a lot of social pressure not to. So why is it important, do you think, for us to have a definition or an idea that we all agree on? Or is it, you know, for me, I kind of feel like it's important for the people I love and who love me for us to understand what we mean by that. Yeah. Is it important culturally for us to all have the same definition of love? I don't think so. I mean, so part of what I think love is at this sort of social level where we we create the script, as it were, is a composite image of everybody's picture of love, right? So all of the representations that you see on TV, imagine them being like overlaid over each other like a composite photograph. And then what emerges from that gives you the big social picture. 
I think it's actually important for people to disagree right, at the individual level. That's how you get diversity. It's how you get change. The thing you're putting your finger on is that it is really important to be clear about what you mean by love. If you're going to have a really important conversation about that with somebody that really matters to you. And that's one of the huge problems I'm trying to address with this book is that we don't have that kind of conversation about what we mean. And I think part of that issue, and, and I know you do too, is that the composite that most of us are working off of is very homogenous and very narrow. I mean, I think that yeah. with this show running shortly before Valentine's Day, we're at peak homogenous <laughs> love definition, right? This is the moment uh -huh. where, where the definition of love seems to feel the narrowest. It doesn't leave a lot of people a lot of paths to figure out other things that might work better for them. And I, I feel like I should say, like, if the dominant idea of heteromonogamous romantic love works for you, individual unscrewed listener, like, that's great. Like, this is not an argument against any definition of love as long as you're not hurting anybody. Right. That's a definition of, like, your love, but it's not yeah. a definition of every kind of love, right? So the, the worry is when people overproject from what they maybe have experienced in their own lives and then assume that that's what it is for everybody. That's the problem. Just getting to the point where you can ha even have the conversation enough to notice that there is a disagreement is really important. So what's your personal definition of love? Can I ask you that? When you say I love you to one of your partners, like, what do you mean? Here's what I might say is my closest thing to a definition. Bell Hooks has written a book called, well, she's written actually three books on love. The one I think, you know, I'm thinking of here is called All About Love. And, and so she builds a definition that has lots of ingredients like care and trust and, and openness, things like that. And she's aiming to get this sort of definition that's inconsistent with abusive relationships because she says people, people are in, at risk in a lot of cases of confusing what's actually abuse for, for love, thinking that it's, that it's love when it's really abuse. And she wants a definition that rules that out. So the closest thing I might say to a definition might be something like what Bell Hooks gives there. So I'm trying to convey, when I say that to a partner, I'm trying to convey something about, you know, my own, like most intense feelings that include like really caring for them, really feeling trusting towards them, really feeling open towards them. But it's also, you know, when I say I love you to a romantic partner, it's not like when I say it to my dog, there's, there's something else there as well, right? I should hope so. Yeah, this romantic dimension. Um, and this is where it gets really tricky, because then you have to say what makes love romantic as opposed to some other kind of thing. And then we're talking about sex in part. Well, we could be. So, I mean, one of the things I, I want to flag there is that I don't think that's the only way to make that distinction because I do believe that like asexual romantic love is possible. So sex becomes like one of these possible ingredients in a romantic love relationship that would help to distinguish it from other kinds of love. But then again, you could have a really good friend with benefits that you love in a friendly way. And you also have sex with, but it's not romance because that's not the kind of relationship. Right. You have sex with them and you love them as a friend, but you don't yeah. feel those in love feelings. Yeah, exactly. So that's where it gets really tricky, right? <laughs> it is a little ineffable, isn't it? That's a good word. And so I don't, I don't <laughs> quite try to F it. <laughs> <laughs> We're in favor of people only effing what they want to on this show. But there's definitely a lot you can do. So one thing I'm really worried about is like going to the opposite extreme and saying, oh, I can't, I can't figure it out completely. So I should just like stop thinking about it. That's really dangerous because that means you're going to turn off your critical thinking skills and you need those. Like, you really need those to be firing on all cylinders. 
if you're actually falling in love or making decisions about love because you're naked without them. Well, I think a lot of hurt comes from our inability to talk about what we individually mean by love and, and think about love. That, you know, if I say I love you to someone and they say it back and we mean really different things by that and we don't talk about it further, that can cause real pain and risk to people. Totally. And so, you know, if, if the only thing that this book were to achieve was the idea that it's important to have that conversation, that would be a total success. I don't really care if anyone believes what I say about it. I really care about people having the conversation for themselves. And, and I really care about people thinking for themselves about that question. You talk a little in the book about the resistance to thinking and talking about the question and the idea that it might ruin the magic of love. Oh, yeah. We'll talk a little more about that, because I thought that conversation was great. Temperamentally, I want to talk about everything. (laughs) (laughs) I don't like to leave. There's like a running joke in my house about my war on subtext. (laughs) But I get that. Like I sort of grok it at the same time. The idea that like there are feelings you don't want to like think about too much because they're so lovely and it feels it does feel sort of magical and you're afraid you're going to like ruin the magic by thinking and talking about it too much. I mean, I also hear that around sex a lot. You know, Mm -hmm, as a sex mm -hmm. educator, I'm constantly working against the idea that it's unsexy to talk about sex or it'll ruin the mood or the moment. Um, And I think that's a related idea, which I'm constantly frustrated by. I feel your pain. I think it's it's a very similar phenomenon, actually, that, you know, don't think about it because you'll ruin it. Don't talk about it because you'll spoil it. Those are ways of shutting down conversation, which means shutting down like criticism or critique of anything that's going wrong socially and that of course is going to benefit the people who are benefiting most from the current social arrangements Mm. so people for whom whatever the current sexual and romantic culture is the people who are really benefiting from that are going to benefit from shutting down any conversation that could reveal the problems with that and so uh, this is part of why I'm saying it's really important to keep having the conversations. So I call it the romantic mystique, this idea that like romantic love is just magical and wonderful and you can't figure it out and so you shouldn't try because it's just it's just natural and perfect the way it is. And and I'm naming it after you know, much older idea of the feminine mystique, this idea that the women are magical and wonderful and you can't understand them. So, you know, you shouldn't try and, and they should just kind of accept their nature passively without questioning it. Um, I think those are both really dangerous ideas. And the same is true for sex, too, right? You don't just kind of accept it without questioning it. If you if you do that, you're going to wind up in potentially really bad situations. Yeah, absolutely. But you don't think it will ruin the magic? I can say that it's never ruined the magic for me. I can also say this. So, so some people are worried that if they take a really close look at their love, their romantic relationship, that's going to spoil it. It's going to disappear. Um, and, you know, what I say about that is that something that might disappear if you look at it too hard might not be the best thing to base your most important decisions around. You know, another word for, for things like that would be an illusion or a trick of the eye. If it wouldn't stand a really close look, then, you know, I'm not sure it's as great as you might think it is. I mean, it's not like there are no risks from that. It's true. You might find out, it might get ugly if you look really close. But if, if that happens, then that ugliness was always there yes. already. And, and you just didn't know about it. And that's not better, right? Right. Looking at it did not create the flaw, whatever it is. And I would also argue that there are real benefits aside from knowing whether something's unstable to thinking and talking about this explicitly. You know, for me... 
I feel like it makes me closer to my partners because we can talk about what we really deeply believe and feel as best as we can. And we really come to understand and trust each other at a different level. Obviously, since I'm a monogamous person, I'm not one of those people who thinks poly is inherently better. But I do think it requires Mm -hmm. a kind of thoughtfulness and communication that monogamy, because it's like the default setting from the culture, doesn't. Mm -hmm inherently ask of people people aren't even talking about what they mean by monogamy i I, i'm gonna Mm -hmm. sort of ask fact this study because i only vaguely remember it but i remember reading a study and maybe you've seen it that shows that you know that asked monogamous couples like what they meant by monogamy and like they had really different different definitions (laughs) right and but they weren't talking about it because there was just this this assumption that that comes from that composite rom-com you know cultural narrative Mm -hmm. that like Mm -hmm. everybody knows what it is uh, and everybody's playing by the same rules and it's just not so you're completely right even things you want to label traditional that there's no off the peg model for that you know you need to have these conversations whatever kind of relationship you want to be in absolutely when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. So talk to me, you alluded earlier, and I went in a little different direction, but to like the places where biological ideas of love and social construction ideas of love sort of don't line up and what happens in those gaps. Mm -hmm. So here's one kind of example. The social script says like love has to be hetero. No queer love is allowed. In fact, sometimes it's not even sort of on the register as possible. And so in, in that case, you've got a script that just really doesn't match up with the biological reality of what humans are, right? Which is that they're not uniformly hetero they they are um, a range of other things as well um, and so over time that biological mismatch um, you can try to like suppress the biology um, but what's actually happened is that over time that the biology's insisted right it's it's just stayed there um, we haven't been able to make it go away um, despite you know some really horrible efforts to mm-hmm. here in the u.s that's we're on a lot of people's minds because we have a vice president who believes yes. in conversion therapy it's terrifying <laughs> So, I mean, this is something that's still kind of quite a potent fear, I think, for me anyway, for a lot of people. 
that we might be about to take some some massive steps backwards on on this kind of issue. What's been happening is that we've been molding our social script, which which we like collectively have quite a lot of control over, and we need to sort of realize that in order to move it in good directions. But we've been molding it to to allow more openness on that question. So we've been kind of including the possibility of queer love in the social script because the biology's been refusing to go away, right? We haven't been able to get rid of it. Right. So we're getting the two to match up together by changing the script. And I think that's great. Although I always am a little hesitant about biological arguments for queer rights because mm. as a bisexual person, I mm-hmm. feel like it could be expected of me that because I have heterosexual attractions that I just adhere to those. Right. And also if we discover new things biologically, does that mean we don't have, you know, I, I feel philosophically, I don't know if I'm even using that word right, because you're a professional, but um, I, I feel like we can't help it is a less robust argument for civil rights than it's none of your fucking business. <laughs> I completely agree with that. I mean, <laughs> so I think, I think honestly, it's none of your fucking business is the right argument. I'm not even so much looking here at like the moral arguments, but so uh, as the, like the history of right. what's happened, okay, like yeah, yeah. why did this happen? So the attempts to shut down the biology just mm-hmm. didn't work. And so as a pragmatic fact, this is the reason why we came to fit the social script to, to the biology and stop trying to do the, the opposite. Um, and now we're kind of in this position where the same kinds of issues are coming up with, with monogamy um, and it's getting more and more pressing because um, people are living longer, basically, and they're expecting more time out of their permanent monogamous relationships. And they're also, we're sort of gradually catching up with the idea that it's not okay for, say, men to rape their wives. If you're shutting down women's sexual desire in whatever way that might be happening, it's it's actually going to shut down the entire process. It's not going to be forcible marital sex allowed. And this is such a like glacial pace of change that even though the law changed in most places by the 90s, change in practice is a lot slower than change in principle, but we are getting there. Well, and, and you know, in the sweep of history, the 90s is like two seconds ago. Right, it's a blink of an eye, yeah. Although also, I mean, I, I believe it's true that love and marriage were not even interlocked concepts until historically recently anyway. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. One of the reasons why I think the social script for romantic love might have come into existence is to create this idea of a kind of love that really distinctively goes with marriage. So one of the things I look at is, um, you know, ancient Greek society, where there's a lot of philosophy of love going on, right? Plato is really into this stuff. And he was trying to give really careful analysis of different kinds of love, mostly eros, which is sometimes you, it gets translated as passionate love or a desire. But he's so he's not really presenting it as anything like what um, we would necessarily call romantic love now. Um, so there's a real question did romantic love exist back then? And there wasn't this this kind of social script that involves marriage and all these other things. There probably was the same thing going on biologically, right, for a lot of people. The way I sometimes put it is that the biology is like an actor and the social script is like a role that, it's, that the actor is going to play. So back mm. in ancient Greece, you might well have had the actor on set, but the script wasn't written yet, so didn't get to play that role. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. For there to be any real drama, you need both. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> so your book is called What Love Is and What It Could Be. So 
talk a little bit about the second half of that. What is the idea of love that you'd like to see us moving toward? Yeah, good. So when I talk about what love could be, I talk about both the the social angle and the biological angle, because they're both really important here. So socially, you know, we have a lot of control over the social script. Not any one individual, but we, all of us together, have a lot of control over the script. We could decide to say that you don't have to be uh, hetero to be in love. We can decide to say you don't have to be monogamous to be in love. And we could then start representing a more diverse range of romantic models in culture and art and literature and just in our own lives. And if we did that, the composite image would change, right? We would get a very different social picture of what love is. Um, So what love could be depends on, you know, what we decide to do with that, how we decide to tell our stories, what, what stories we decide to tell and what stories we decide to listen to as well, right? Because a lot depends on who's going to pay to go and see a movie that has a certain kind of story. Right. And it also depends on who the Hollywood bosses think will go pay. Yes, that too. <laughs> which is not the same as who will go pay. Not the same, absolutely. So yeah, part of this is, um, is about making clear what we do and don't value, right? What stories we do and don't want to hear, trying to transmit that information as much as possible. So that's all like on the social level. And what I would love to see there is just more inclusiveness. I'm not, I don't want to see anything ruled out but I want to see much more rules in. I want to see asexual love represented. I want to see a lot more kinds of queer love represented. And I want to see more non-monogamous love represented. And I want those things to become normal, not weird. That when highlights, have you been following this thing with highlights? No. It's a magazine for kids. It's really exciting because like you're a kid and you get a magazine delivered to the house with your name on it and you feel super adult. (laughs) And they recently under pressure depicted... Uh, same-sex family just like in because they mm-hmm. have cartoons and things in it obviously they included an image of a same-sex family in a story that wasn't mm-hmm. about being same-sex it was just there they were and there's you know this huge conservative hue and cry there's like this million moms who are never a million just don't be fooled by the name <laughs> that's that's the organization name are, are like boycott highlights and this is propaganda mm-hmm. So in, in your, I think, in, in our shared vision of what love should be or could be, it, that image would be included and no one would remark upon it, right? It would be right. just normal. It would just be normal. And, you know, it also reminds me of the, do you, do you remember the, the hullabaloo about that old Navy ad recently? I think that must have been last year yeah. um, where there was, I think there was the, a black guy and a white woman and a kid. Yes. And they were, you know, modeling as a family and there was this massive outcry. And I mean, I, that one just really kind of makes me tear my hair out because <laughs> this is a very old, old problem that um, that we're still trying to fix and what kinds of love we're, we're willing to accept as being normal and unremarkable. Um, so that's all on the on the social side. But I also do want to think about like what love could be biologically, because there's this tendency to think, uh, well, if it's in your biology, it's natural, then you're stuck with it. You can't change that. That's just the way it is, which is interesting because we don't really think like that about biology in lots of other respects. Like if you have, um, you know, a biological illness, you don't just think, oh, well, what a shame, I'm going to die or I'm going <laughs> to... You, you 
you try to cure that. <laughs> you try to change your biology so that you get better. This idea that we, we're just stuck with biology and we can't possibly change anything on that front is, is weird and, and a mistake. So part of what I try to do towards like in the later sections of the book is start thinking more about some of the ways that people are already starting to talk about biological interventions in love. So different kinds of, for example, chemical interventions that might be used to try to promote um, staying in love with someone you are with, or in some cases to try to reduce um, the feelings associated with being in love with someone you, you need to, to leave, someone oh. you need to get away from. It's funny, the first one feels creepy to me and the second one sounds so <laughs> useful. <laughs> Here's the problem. They can both be super creepy if right. they're used in creepy ways. Yes. Um, and so, you know, what, what really matters as soon as you get down those roads is to examine the ideology behind the biology. People who are arguing, for example, that um, we should use chemistry to, to get people to stay together, some of them are doing that in the context of saying, well, it's good for children if there's less divorce, so we should use chemical interventions to keep couples together so that they stay together for the children. And so, you know, immediately then I want to ask, well, is it good for the people if the people who would have left each other? Yes. If it wasn't for the drugs they were on. I'm really worried about the gendered uses of these. A new kind of okay. mother's little helper. That's exactly the analogy that I that I want to draw. Yeah. And it's, you know, this attempt to sort of paper over a problem that then goes unaddressed. I think the same thing about some of these sort of, um, you know, flibanserin and ways of trying to say that, like, if, if women's sexuality has shut down, then we should try to give them, you know, drugs and counseling and not look at the social factors behind what's what's happening there that could be causing that. It's actually, it's a large scale problem, right? You, know, you must know the studies of uh, monogamous hetero women uh, are losing desire at a much higher rate than monogamous hetero men in long-term relationships, right? You know, um, when my last book came out, this was six years ago, admittedly, I spent about a week as a guest expert on a, I think it was Cafe Moms. It was a website for women on a message boards. <laughs> and, they, you know, they could so they could ask me questions and I would just chat with them. And <laughs> literally over and over again got asked the same question, which is, I've lost my desire to have sex with my husband. Yeah. Can you tell me what the biological fix for that is? Uh, yeah. yeah. And it and made it's... me so sad. Like the yeah. biological fix for that is like for your husband <laughs> to care about your sexual pleasure and for you to feel safe with him and not feel like you're doing twice the work. <laughs> right? Like, and Which is not to say that there aren't biological libido issues individual sure. separate from those factors. But I think we would find way fewer, right? <laughs> Right. When it's a pattern on this scale, yes. it can't be that every individual woman is broken, right? The impact on women's libido of the patriarchy, you can't fix that by medicating them, the women. No, exactly. You have to fix the patriarchy. Otherwise, it's like basically medical gaslighting. It is. And I mean, it's a form of victim blaming because you're identifying as the problem the person who is actually you know, not creating the problem but suffering from it. Um, and then you're, you're doing something that even if it works occasionally or for individuals, um, it's, just, it's, it's only going to be papering a symptom and it's not going to address the, the root cause. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I know this is not your field, but do you have any advice for listeners who are feeling really alienated by this narrow narrative right now during the Valentine season? Have you got any parting words for them? 
Yes. And actually, they're kind of like parting words for me, too, because I don't fit the narrative. I'm a, a poly woman and openly in, in two relationships. And so actually, a lot of the reason for writing this book is trying to figure out whether I count as being in love, given that fact. Is this, is this really romantic love, whatever I'm doing? For anyone who's kind of not conforming to the mold, what I end up saying in the book is you're changing the world by not conforming to the mold and, and very literally changing the world. You're changing the social world, the social construct of romantic love, which is this product of all of the different models that we're all generating all the time. So every time one person does something that doesn't look like the script, they're adding their own layer to the composite image. And enough people keep doing that and the composite image changes. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with not conforming to the script. It's it's literally changing the world. Um, but I really understand because I've been there that the costs of doing that all fall on you and you be you become a rebel whether or not you want to be one if you're not conforming the world makes you a rebel i know how hard that is and I'm, these aren't exactly words of comfort these are just words of been there yeah i actually think that's lovely and it's wonderful i feel comforted <laughs> Uh, well, thank you so much for helping us think through this stuff. The, the book, again, is called What Love Is and What It Could Be. It's available everywhere, more or less, yes? Um, yes, I hope so. Okay. And if it's not at your bookstore, go ask for them to get it in. Carrie, are you doing events for it? Where can people follow your work in general? Let us know how people can connect. Yeah, I'm doing a couple of events uh, around Valentine's Day. I'll be in Portland on the 13th of February, Seattle on um, the 14th of February. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Carrie Jenkins. I'm also on Facebook as um, Carrie Ichikawa Jenkins. It's my middle name, Ichikawa. Fantastic. And you can also find me on Twitter at Jacqueline F, J-A-C-L-Y-N-F. Uh, on Facebook there as well. On Instagram, I'm Jacqueline Fable. If you want to continue the conversation, come talk to Carrie and I about how you experience love and how you think about love and how you talk to partners about love. Use the hashtag unscrewed, use our handles, and we would love to jump in that conversation with you. You can find the show notes for this and all the past episodes of Unscrewed at my website, which is JacquelineFriedman.com. Friedman is F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. You can also find writing and upcoming events for me and all kinds of other stuff there. Please email me at unscrewed at JacquelineFriedman.com with requests for future topics or future guests and also with your sex and sexuality related advice questions that I can get answered by myself and future guests. Uh, you can find this show wherever fine podcasts are available. iTunes, Acast, Stitcher. Make sure you subscribe so you won't miss an episode. When you're in iTunes, if you want to share the show, you want to make sure other people find us, please, please give us five stars. Give me a little two sentence review. It makes a big difference. The show is produced and edited by yours truly. Our in and out music is by the Pink Tiles. Our cover art is by Nicole Dodonna and was designed in collaboration with the establishment who also designed the sound cues. Until next week, I'm wishing you all safe and happy sex lives. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.